Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com slash premium. It only costs $5 a month. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Raycon. With Raycon, you get the same high-quality audio as other premium brands, but for half the price. Go to buyraycon.com gold to get 15% off your order. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Shopify. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving small entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for just big businesses. To get a free 14-day trial and full access to Shopify's entire suite of features, go to shopify.com gold. A four-week winning streak in the S&P 500 finally came to an end this week. As a matter of fact, going into the last trading day of the week, the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones were still positive on the week. But a big sell-off on Friday reversed the gains earlier in the week. The Dow actually was the strongest of the indexes. It was only down about 55 points on the week following a near 300-point fall on Friday. S&P down a bit more, down 1.2% on the week. But again, all of that loss happened on Friday. As of Thursday, the S&P was still in positive territory. Now, the Russell 2000 and the NASDAQ, they were both down on the week going into Friday, and they extended those losses on Friday. The S&P 500 down 2.3% on the week. The Russell 2000 down 2.9% on the week. And as you go further down the curve on the risk spectrum of tech stocks, look at the Kathy Wood ARK Innovation ETF. That fund was clobbered by 14% on the week. Also, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust falling with Bitcoin down 13% on the week. In fact, Bitcoin was down a bit more than that. And in fact, if you measure it from its intraweek high, which was 25,200, to the low yesterday, which was about 20,800, 
Bitcoin had an intra-week decline so far of 17.5%. Also, the meme stocks got beaten up pretty hard in general. Look at AMC. That stock was down 26.4% on the week. GameStop only down 10.4%. Still a big drop, but not nearly as big as other meme stocks. Look at what happened with Bed Bath & Beyond. Now that stock was down 15% on the week, but that doesn't tell the real story. Because if you look at where that stock was trading at its high on Wednesday, which was just over $30, it had almost tripled on the week. And then by Friday's close, it was 63.3% below its Wednesday peak. Now this wild ride, I think, really typifies the casino-like mentality that the Federal Reserve has created with these mean stocks, and in fact, in the stock market in general, and how you have so many people mindlessly piling into trades, just chasing momentum, Bed Bath & Beyond is a bankrupt company. I mean, it's not bankrupt yet, but look at the bonds. I think the bonds are trading for something like 50 cents on the dollar. And so if the bondholders don't expect to get their money back, there's no chance that the common stockholders are going to get theirs back. So people who were paying $30 a share for Bed Bath & Beyond have no idea what they're doing. The only people who had a clue were the people who were selling the stock on the way up. In fact, if you really stop to think about it, which clearly none of the people buying shares of Bed Bath & Beyond did before they put in their buy orders, but it's hard to think of a business that's in worse shape to weather the current economic storm than a brick-and-mortar specialty company like Bed Bath & Beyond that is tied very heavily into both the housing market and discretionary consumer spending. Consumers are getting killed with inflation. They're paying more for food. They're paying more for energy, for rent. They don't have money to splurge on some fancy bath products or stuff for their kitchen. And home sales are collapsing. I'll get into that a bit later. Real estate is in a recession, so you don't have a lot of people buying homes. You don't have a lot of people remodeling homes. So they don't need new kitchens and bathrooms. And plus, a lot of the stuff that Bed Bath & Beyond sells, you could buy similar stuff on Amazon, more convenient, less money. They've got so many problems. Why this is the stock that people choose to buy makes no sense. They're only buying it because it's going up and it's only going up because other fools are buying it who don't understand the fundamentals of the company. They just think they're going to make money because the price is going to go up. It's the greater fool theory. And unfortunately, that's how most people are investing. They're fools. They just haven't figured it out yet. But so many fools are in for a rude awakening when the music finally stops on all of these type of trades. Now, the most significant thing about the down week in the stock market was the type of stocks that went down the most. And those are the momentum names. Those are also the names that went up the most in this bear market rally. And now they're going down the most as this bear market rally is coming to an end and the overall bear market trend is resuming. And the reason that the high multiple momentum names, the profitless companies, the reason that they went down the most is because what drove the decline on the week was the market starting to come to terms 
with the fact that maybe the Powell pivot is not going to take place as soon as they thought. The markets are now pushing back when they expect the Fed to stop hiking. And in fact, when they expect the Fed to reverse the process and start cutting. And so this is bad for growth stocks for two reasons. One, it means higher interest rates, which are a big negative for these growth stocks because you are discounting their future earnings by a higher interest rate. But also, if the Fed is going to have to stay higher for longer, then the economy is going to be weaker for longer. And that is also going to weigh down on the earnings that investors expect these companies to deliver in the distant future. So all of this is working to reduce what investors are willing to pay today for those stocks. So we're starting to see this shift coming back to value and dividend paying stocks and away from momentum growth type stocks. And I believe that this is going to gain steam. I've always thought that what we were experiencing was a bear market rally, a sucker rally, a correction. And I think that correction has ended and the primary trend has resumed. The same thing applies to Bitcoin and to other cryptocurrencies. The reason that crypto got hit so hard this week was because Bitcoin, despite its claims of being a safe haven or a store of value, is the riskiest of risk assets. And so when people are going risk off, when people are worried about higher interest rates impacting risk assets, the risk assets that feel it the most are cryptocurrencies. In fact, one of the more interesting developments on the week was not just that Bitcoin dropped sharply, and as I'm recording this podcast, it's barely hanging on to a 21,000 handle, about 21,200, but more significant than the drop in price was the drop in dominance because Bitcoin now represents less than 40% of the total market cap of all the cryptocurrencies. Right now, as I'm recording, it's at 39.8. The low I saw yesterday was 39.6. The lowest it's gotten in the last four years, I think, was 39.5-ish. And that was back in January of this year. But to get a lower level than 39 and a half, you have to go all the way back to June of 2018. Now, the reason I think Bitcoin is losing market share is because it's got so much more competition now. There are 20,650 altcoins to choose from. But if you want to gamble in the crypto space, there are a lot more casinos out there than just these currencies. You can get involved in NFTs. You can get involved in crypto-related companies and other blockchain businesses. There's all sorts of worthless investments that you can make if you want to gamble in this space. So that's a lot of competition for Bitcoin itself. And then, of course, again, you've got the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which continues to trade, what, 30% or so discount to NAV? If you love Bitcoin, why buy it for a dollar when you could buy it for 70 cents? So there's more and more competition. As I've always said, Bitcoin itself may be scarce if you want to buy that argument. I don't buy it, but that's how it's marketed. But even if Bitcoin is scarce, the alternatives to Bitcoin are abundant. There is no scarcity. There's an unlimited number of alternative currencies that can be created and other assets that you can buy if you want to speculate 
on the future of crypto. And so what that does is it diminishes the flows into Bitcoin itself. And so Bitcoin is weakening. But ultimately, if Bitcoin weakens enough, it's going to take the wind out of the sails of all these other alternatives and the entire market is going to implode. But this idea that the Fed is going to be tighter for longer and that the pivot is going to happen further away it's having a much bigger impact at least so far in other markets not the stock markets but the bond market the dollar market the gold market that's where you've seen the more significant moves on the week look at bond yields really surging on the week in fact Almost all of the yields, except the 10-year, are back above 3%. Even the six-month Treasury bill closed the week with a yield of 3.09%. A one-year Treasury note, 3.21%. And the two-year at 3.23%. Believe it or not, the two-year is now the high point of the yield curve. At one point, it was the five-year That was the high point. Now it's the two-year. And what that indicates to me is that markets do believe that the recession, which if it's not already here, will arrive sooner than most people thought. And therefore, the Fed will start cutting rates earlier over this five-year time horizon. And so investors expect rates three, four years from now to be lower in relation to where they are now. In fact, the yield curve continues to invert with the five-year at 3.09% and the 10-year at 2.97. So you have an inversion with twos over tens. The inversion stops at the 30-year because the 30-year is 3.21%, but it's still below a two-year treasury bill. So investors are willing to accept a lower yield on a 30-year treasury bond than they will on a two-year treasury note. Now that indicates again that investors still have a lot of false confidence in the Fed's ability to not only bring inflation back down to 2%, but successfully keep it at 2% for most of the next 30 years. Now talk about living in a fantasy land. There is no way the Fed is going to even come close to achieving that for 30 years. They're not even going to achieve it for three years. Yet investors are still operating under the delusion that the Federal Reserve can do what it claims it's going to do. But because the Fed still has that credibility and because the Fed is still talking tough about its resolve to fight inflation, you're seeing this reaction in the bond markets. But also look at the foreign exchange markets. The dollar index surged on the week. If you recall last week, weak economic data helped drive the dollar index below 105. Now, it didn't close that low. It closed at 105 spot six, but it closed this week at 108 spot one. That's a 2.4% rise on the week. That is a big move in the dollar index. And so now that the dollar index has held support at 105, we're going to go back and test that resistance at around 109. And we'll see if that resistance holds If it doesn't, then I was wrong about thinking that the dollar had topped out and maybe there's a little bit more upside to come. Now, remember, I wasn't confident in that call because I wanted to see a 
close below 105, a significant close that would indicate a break of that level, and we never got that. So my hunch never really turned into a strong conviction, although I still may be right on that hunch. We'll see. The dollar index may not make another new high, but if it does, then obviously we may have some more upside before the dollar ultimately rolls over. Look at where the euro is. It's almost back down to parity with the dollar. Dollar yen all the way back up to 137. And again, what is driving the strength in the dollar is now the idea that the Fed is going to be more hawkish. Now, maybe that had to do with some of the economic data that came out mid to late week not being as weak as the markets had been expected. I mean, we didn't really get any strong data. We just got data that wasn't as weak as people had expected. And that, together with the Fed minutes and all this hawkish talk by a lot of FOMC members, but again, it's all talk. And of course, that's exactly what you'd expect when you have no stick. You have to scream as loud as you can and pretend that you've got one. And that's exactly what these FOMC guys are doing. Even those that have historically been the biggest doves on the FOMC are now singing that same hawkish tune. And so that really helped bid up the dollar. The opposite effect on gold, gold was down about 50 bucks on the week, a little bit more. It settled at 1747.60. Remember, we had had two up weeks in a row for gold. Gold finished last week above 1800 and this week had a setback of about 2.8 percent now it wasn't actually that big a drubbing in the gold market and of course if you measure the price of gold against other foreign currencies it was barely down and so given how much it had gone up in the prior couple of weeks against those currencies the fact that it was down slightly i think was a relatively positive sign for gold. Now, silver didn't hold up nearly as well, so that's a negative sign. Silver dropped about 8.5% on the week. It dropped from, I think, around $20.70 to barely over $19 on the week. And if you look at the mining stocks, they really got clobbered as well. The GDX, which is the senior mining stocks, down 7.2%. And the juniors, GDXJ, down 9.3% on the week. That is a big drop in those stocks. And again, why is this happening? Well, because investors are confident that the Fed is going to fight harder to win the war against inflation. Investors still don't understand that no matter how hard the Fed fights, it is going to lose because it can't really fight hard enough to win. Traffic jams tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Yes, the Fed is going to pretend that they're willing to put the economy into recession, but that's only because they believe that any recession will be mild and short-lived. They are not prepared for the type of depression that would actually result 
from a winning fight against inflation. In fact, it's not just a repression, it's a far more severe financial crisis than the one we had in 2008. And if the Federal Reserve was not willing to allow the 2008 crisis to run its course, why would it be willing to allow this worse crisis to run its course? After all, it would have been much better if the Fed did the right thing in 2008, but they didn't have the stomach to do the right thing in 2008. So why should their resolve be any greater now? Why would they do the right thing now when they didn't do it back then? Because doing the right thing now is going to be a lot harder. It's going to have a lot more adverse short-term consequences than would have been the case back in 2008. Not that 2008 would have been a Sunday school picnic. It would have been a disaster. It's just that now doing the right thing is an even bigger disaster given how much worse the problems have got over that time period because of what the Fed did. The Fed blew a lot more air into this bubble. We have a much more dysfunctional economy. The mistakes, the malinvestments, the misallocation of resources, the bad debt in the system, it's so much greater than it was in 2008. And so if the Fed wouldn't let the economy swallow the bitter tasting medicine back then, why would they force feed it even worse tasting medicine now? I've been listening to a lot more podcasts recently, and it's been great. And one reason is that I could listen in bed without waking up my wife, and that's because I'm using Raycon wireless earbuds. And that's why I've teamed up with Raycon. So go to buyraycon.com gold, and you can save 15% on your Raycons. Raycon's everyday earbuds look, feel, and sound better than ever. With optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit, these earbuds are not only so comfortable, but they will not budge. Trust me, Raycons give you eight hours of playtime and 32 hours of battery life. And Raycons are priced just right. You'll get quality audio at half the price of other premium audio brands. It's no wonder Raycons Everyday Earbuds have over 50,000 five-star reviews. In fact, Raycons are so easy to use, even a child can do it. In fact, my son Preston liked mine so much that I had to get him his own pair and he's been using them since he was seven years old. There are three customized sound profiles, earbud tap functions, noise isolation, and awareness mode. So go to buyraycon.com gold today to get 15% off your Raycon order. That's buyraycon.com gold and score 15% off. That's buyraycon.com gold. I want to finish up my discussion of the markets by talking a little bit about oil prices, which actually fell on the week. A barrel of oil was down about a buck 65. That's only a 1.8% drop. Now, obviously, given the rise in the dollar, that still represents an increase in the price of oil for a lot of other currencies like the euro or the Japanese yen. So while Americans got a break on a barrel of oil, people in other countries are still having to pay higher prices because they're having to price oil in their own currency, not the dollar. And that's certainly going to compound the inflation problems all over Europe. As a matter of fact, we got some bad news on inflation in the UK on Wednesday. The headline CPI for July rose a greater than expected 0.6%. They were expecting an increase of 0.4%. But that pushed the year-over-year increase into double-digit territory for the first time. The prior month, it was up 9.4%. 
The consensus was July year over year would be up 9.8. Instead, the actual increase was 10.1%, which represents a 40-year high. Now, I think that really sends some shockwaves throughout the markets to get a look at a major economy like the UK with double-digit inflation. Now, I think in reality, the US has double-digit inflation and the digits are a lot higher than 10. It's just that we're not honestly reporting it. Now, probably they do the same thing in the UK. I'm not as familiar with the methodology behind the British CPI as I am with the US but I wouldn't put it past the Brits to be fudging these numbers as well. So everybody probably has bigger increases in prices than the governments are admitting. But I think just the shock of that number, 10.1%, this also helped contribute to the problems we saw in markets based on the belief that central banks are going to have to fight harder because after all if inflation is above 10 in the UK that could indicate that it's going to be a bigger problem in other countries as well like the United States. Remember the Bank of England was one of those central banks that was claiming that there wasn't enough inflation in Britain that the Brits needed more inflation and that the central bank was determined to deliver a higher rate of inflation. Well, they've exceeded beyond their wildest expectations, and now they've got a much bigger problem than inflation being slightly too low because it's much too high. And of course, inflation being too low was never a problem, but the one we've got now of inflation being too high is an enormous problem, which they helped make a lot bigger by pretending a non-existent problem needed a solution. And the solution to that non-existent problem created this enormous problem from which there is no real politically viable solution either in the UK or anywhere else. But bringing the discussion back home, at least my home, I want to talk about the economic data that came out in the US during the week because I think this data at least was partially responsible for the markets behaving the way they did in expecting the Fed to take a tougher stance in its inflation fight because a lot of this data, though it wasn't strong, it wasn't as weak as the markets had been anticipating. And apparently not as weak is the new strong. But the weak did start out on a very weak note. I think the first data point that we got on Monday was the Empire State Manufacturing Index. And this was a disaster. The prior month in July, the reading was 11.1. And the expectation was for decline to five. In fact, if you look at the range of estimates, it went from a low of three to a high of eight. The number we actually got was minus 31.3. That is the lowest number ever in the history of the Empire State Manufacturing Index. I'm not really sure how far back that history is, but whatever it is, this is the lowest number ever recorded. And in fact, the decline from 11.1 to minus 31.3, that is the second biggest drop ever recorded. So a very, very weak number, which I think set the bar very low for later numbers not to come out nearly as bad because I think after getting a look at how bad that number was, there was a lot of relief 
that other numbers weren't nearly as bad. Now, one segment of the economy that got bad economic news throughout the week was housing. All the housing news that we got was pretty much abysmal. Take a look at the July existing home sales. They actually came out later in the week on Thursday. The estimate was for 4.85 million annualized. We got 4.81 million. The decline on a month over month basis was 5.9%. The prior month's 5.4% decline was revised to a 5.5% decline. In fact, this is the sixth consecutive month where existing home sales have declined. On a year-over-year basis, sales are now down 20.2%. We're at the lowest absolute level since November of 2015. Earlier in the week, we got the housing market index. The consensus was for a reading of 55, and that would have matched the prior month. The consensus went from a low of 53 to a high of 58. Instead, we came out at 49. Now, anything below 50 is considered negative. This is the first time we've had a reading below 50 since June of 2014. And in fact, if you look at the decline in home builder sentiment, this is the biggest decline since 2007. Now, that was the peak of the last housing bubble and you have to go all the way back to that point in time to see this rapid a deterioration in sentiment for home building also we've got the numbers on housing starts and building permits with housing starts coming out way below expectations though building permits were a bit higher the consensus was for a 1.54 million annualized rise in starts instead we got just one spot four for six million permits though a bit better they were looking for one spot six five we got one spot six seven four but just focusing on the starts which i think is more important than the permits because housing starts have actually happened permits are just the potential. Just because you take out a building permit doesn't mean you're actually going to build. So building permits maybe indicate what builders think they might do, but the starts actually show what they are doing. And in this case, the starts collapsed by 9.6% on the month. We're now at the lowest level since February of 2021 and falling. And permits, even though they were better than expected, They're still at the lowest level since September of 2021. Breaking down the numbers a bit, you can see that there's a much heavier toll exacted on single family. Single family starts are down 18.5% year over year, while multifamily starts are down just 10%. Why is that? Well, because higher mortgage rates and higher home prices are making buying a home unaffordable for a lot of people so they have no choice but to rent and so that's why more rental units are being built than single family home same story with the permits year over year the permits to build single family homes are down 11.7 percent yet the permits to build multifamily homes are actually up 26.2%. Now we'll see if a lot of those multifamily homes that have been permitted actually get constructed 
given the increased cost and supply chain bottlenecks, maybe some of these developers are a little bit more optimistic on their ability to actually produce the multifamily homes that they see demand for in the market. But now I want to turn my attention to some of the other economic news that while kind of bad, was not as bad as the markets had been expecting. And I'm going to start with the leading economic indicators. And the expectation was for a 0.5% decline. The prior month was reported as down 0.8. And that was actually revised a bit higher, only down 0.7. And the number for July came in at minus 0.4, which again was not as bad as the markets had expected. But putting that aside, it's still a bad number. In fact, this is the fifth consecutive month where the leading economic indicators have been negative. Now that rarely happens. In fact, you have to go all the way back to the Great Recession of 2008-2009 to see that happen. So something is happening right now with leading economic indicators that hasn't happened since the economy was in the middle of the worst recession since the Great Depression, yet all the experts are trying to convince us that we're not even in a recession right now, let alone a great one. Don't you just love that sound? That's the sound of another sale taking place on Shopify. Shopify is more than just a store. It helps you connect with your customers, drive your sales, and manage your day-to-day. So supercharge your knowledge, your sales, and your success. For a free 14-day trial, go to shopify.com gold, all lowercase. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving small business owners the resources once reserved for just big business. And it's all customers customized for you with a great looking online store that brings your ideas to life and gives you the tools to manage and drive your sales. Making your idea real opens endless possibilities. And the best part is how easy Shopify makes it for anyone to successfully run a small business. Shopify powers millions of entrepreneurs from their first sale to full scale. Every 28 seconds, another small business owner makes their first sale on Shopify. So get started now by building and customizing your own online online store with no coding or design experience required. Gain access to powerful tools to help you find customers, drive sales, and manage your day-to-day. And gain the knowledge and confidence that comes with having the resources to succeed. Plus, with 24-7 support, you're never alone. It's more than just a store. Shopify grows with you. These are the possibilities, and they're powered by Shopify. So go to shopify.com gold all lowercase, and get a free 14-day trial and full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. So start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash gold right now. We also got a better-than-expected report on industrial production for July. And the prior month was reported as minus 0.2, and the expectation was for plus 0.3. Well, they revised the prior month up to zero. And instead of being up 0.3, July came in at up 0.6, which was double what had been expected, but was still within the range of expectations. But nonetheless, it was a beat. Now, of course, you got to take all this with a grain of salt because none of these numbers are adjusted for inflation. So obviously, when you have a lot of inflation, industrial production, at least the price of it, is going to go up because the price of 
producing anything is going up. So whether or not in real terms, industrial production went up remains to be seen. Maybe we produce less. It's just that the stuff that we did produce cost more. Now, the same story with manufacturing output, that was expected to rise by 0.2. Instead, it rose by 0.7. They even took the prior month's decline of minus 0.5 and made it just minus 0.4. So again, stronger data there. I mean, the data isn't strong. It just isn't as weak as expectations. And capacitor utilization went up to 80.3. The expectation was for a rise to 80.1, although the prior month was actually revised down a bit from 80 even to 79.9. But again, this was part of the data that maybe investors were bracing for worse than expected. We got better than expected. And so that was not the news that the markets wanted because again, it's bad news is good news, which means good news is bad news. And so this was bad news that weighed on stocks, but it also weighed on foreign currencies. It weighed on gold. It weighed on bonds. We had a similar story with retail sales, although the headline number came out a bit weaker than expected. The rest of the report was stronger. And again, retail sales not adjusted for inflation. Clearly, in real terms, sales are falling. People are buying less and paying more. That's the story. That's not strength. That's weakness. But the expectation was for a 0.1% rise in retail sales. Instead, retail sales were flat, so no rise at all. And in fact, the prior month's gain of 1% was revised down to 0.8. But X vehicles, it was a bit of a different story. They were expecting a minus 0.1. Instead, we got a plus 0.4. And if you X'd out gasoline and vehicles, instead of being up 0.3, we were up 0.7. So again, adjusted for inflation, probably not a real rise. But again, the markets had been getting a lot of negative economic news and now all of a sudden the negative news isn't as bad we were beating expectations granted the bar had been lowered quite a bit but we were able to get over that bar and again that's not what the markets wanted to hear same thing with jobless claims you know we have been going up 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 in weekly jobless claims now we've been moving back we had a revision to the prior week which was reported as 262,000 That was revised down to 252,000. The expectation for this week was 265,000. We came in at 250. So these are a bit softer. We're still a lot higher than we were six months ago, but we've softened a little bit. So maybe that created a glimmer of hope that maybe the worst is behind us for the increase in claims. In fact, the four-week moving average moved down a bit. It was 252000 last week. They revised that down to 249500 And this most recent week, it came out lower again at 246750 Now, I don't think this is a change of trend. I think this is just a slight correction. I think we're headed a lot higher in unemployment claims. But for now, the market's got a bit of a breather and that continued to fuel the narrative 
of a tougher Fed. But probably one of the more significant beats was the Philadelphia Fed manufacturing survey because a lot of people were bracing for a really bad number given the abysmal number we got in the Empire State manufacturing number. So the consensus for the Philly Fed was for a decline of five. And that would have been a smaller decline than the prior months of minus 12.3. Instead, we didn't get a decline at all. We got a rise of 6.2. Now, that's not a big number, but it's a lot better than what the markets had been expected. In fact, the range of expectations went from minus 15 to plus 2. So plus 6.2 was more than triple the high end of the range. And I think, again, that really helped drive this narrative that, hey, maybe the economy isn't as weak as we thought. The Fed is still resolute in its commitment to fight inflation. And so maybe we were a bit premature in pricing in the PAL pivot. So we better start pricing some of that out. And that's why you saw these big moves, not just in the stock market, but again, even bigger moves in the foreign exchange markets, the gold market, the cryptocurrency market and the bond market. But despite some of this better than expected economic news on the week, if you look at the current prediction for Q3 GDP out of the Atlanta Fed, it's just for 1.6%. Now granted, that would snap a two-quarter losing streak of negative GDP, but we're still early in Q3. In fact, earlier in the month, the Atlanta Fed was looking for a 2.5%, I think, rise in Q3 GDP. So they've already ratcheted that down quite a bit. And if you go back to a similar point in time in Q2, the expectation at that time by the Atlanta Fed was for the GDP to be greater than plus 1.6, and it ended up as a negative 0.9. So I think it's still early in the quarter. There's a lot of time for more negative data to come out that will ultimately push both the Atlanta Fed's expectation and what is actually delivered in Q3 to be a third consecutive quarter of falling GDP. And let's see the experts try to dismiss that and claim that even three quarters of declining GDP still doesn't constitute a recession. But I think more important than some of these economic data points is what's actually going on in the economy as admitted by some of these corporations while they're releasing their earnings. This is particularly true when it comes to Walmart, which actually beat on both revenue and earnings. But even though it beat on earnings, year over year, earnings were still down. It's just that they weren't down as much as investors had expected. So this was being heralded as good news because it was a beat and Walmart share price went up as a result of the good news. But I think looking beneath the headlines, the news was not nearly as good when looking at what's actually going on with Walmart customers. First of all, one of the comments that was made that Walmart noticed an increase of more affluent customers shopping at its stores. Now, what does that tell you? Well, people are trading down. People that didn't shop at Walmart because they shopped at more expensive stores because they're getting squeezed by inflation because their rent is up or their mortgage is up, their food costs are up, their energy costs are up, 
They don't have as much discretionary income. So in order to get by, they are trading down. They prefer to shop at fancier stores that have maybe better merchandise, more expensive merchandise, but they can't afford that stuff anymore. The only thing they can afford is Walmart. And so while that may be a good sign for Walmart, it's a bad sign for the overall economy that so many people that used to be wealthy enough not to have to shop at Walmart have now seen their wealth diminish to the point where Walmart is all they can afford. Also, Walmart mentioned that they're seeing an increase in the use of credit cards over debit cards. Again, what is that telling you? Well, it means that Walmart customers don't have enough cash in their bank accounts to buy stuff using their debit cards. So now they have to put stuff on their credit cards because they're buying stuff that they can't afford. Why? Well, because prices are going up and they're going up by such a degree that customers can no longer afford to pay cash and so they're relying on credit as a lifeline. And of course, when you put your food on a credit card, it ultimately becomes a lot more expensive because you not only have to pay the cost of the food, but you have to pay the interest because you borrow the money to buy the food. Walmart also mentioned that they're seeing a rise in the sale of generic products. Now, what does that tell you? Well, consumers can't afford to buy the branded products that they prefer, so they're settling for generic products. Again, this is a sign of stress. Consumers, if times were good, they would spring for these name brands, but they can't afford it, so they have to settle for just a generic product. Also, Walmart mentioned that when it comes to food, customers are buying less expensive food items than they bought before. Now, why? Is that because all of a sudden consumers prefer cheap food? No, they prefer the more expensive food. They just can't afford it anymore. So they have to settle for what they can afford, which is lower cost food items. So all of these signs indicate an economy that is weakening, if not already in recession. And it's not just Walmart. There are a lot of other companies that are telling this story. In fact, look at the layoffs now that we're seeing in the mortgage lending business. In fact, a lot of these companies, their share price is getting killed. Some have already filed for bankruptcy. See, the problem here is a lot of these companies were born out of the lending boom, especially when it came to serial refinancing. With rates so low, you had this huge pool of potential borrowers who could refinance their mortgages. And of course, a lot of people were using a mortgage refi as a way to extract equity. They would refinance into a bigger mortgage and they would use that money to pay their bills. And they might even make paying those bills easier if they could refinance into a lower mortgage, even if they borrowed more money because of the lower rate, their payments might have been lower. So this enabled all these companies to start and expand. Well, now with mortgage interest rates nearly double what they were, the flow of mortgage applications has completely dried up. In fact, right now, the level of mortgage applications is the lowest it's been since in the aftermath of the 2000.com bust. So it's actually dried up more than it did following the bust of the housing bubble and the financial crisis of 2008. You got to go back 22 years 
to see mortgage applications this low. Now, obviously, we have a lot of companies in that business that we didn't have back then that are now going out of business. And all of this indicates a big problem in the economy. But an even bigger problem in the economy has been the collapse in worker productivity. And that is also compounding the inflation problem. But I read an article in the Wall Street Journal and another one in Bloomberg that shed a lot of light on this problem, but also helped explain another problem that I've been talking about on this podcast. And that is the big increase in moonlighting. The fact that so many people are now working multiple part-time jobs and even worse, the fact that we now have a record number of people holding down two full-time jobs. Now, I just assumed that the reason people had two full-time jobs was because they had no way to make ends meet with one. And I thought most of these people working multiple full-time jobs were working low-wage jobs. And if you couldn't make ends meet with one low-paying full-time job, well, you had a struggle and work two low-paying full-time jobs. Well, these articles pointed out that a lot of the people who are working two full-time jobs, these are actually very high-paying jobs. These are not low-paying jobs. These are people working jobs where they're making $100,000, $200,000 a year, and yet they're holding down two of these jobs simultaneously. Now, how is this possible? Well, it's actually quite obvious, and I'm surprised that I didn't think of it on my own, that I had to read about it in the Wall Street Journal. But that just shows you that reading the paper, every once in a while, you learn something that you didn't figure out on your own. Now, what should have been obvious is the fact that you have all these people that are working from home. And I've always said that I didn't think that people working from home we're going to be as productive as people working at an office. After all, people could have worked from home a long time ago. Sure, it's easier now with the internet and computers, but one of the reasons that bosses want their workers working from the office is so they can make sure they're actually working. There's a lot of distractions when you're at home that you don't necessarily have in an office. And of course, when you're in an office, the mentality is work. When you're still at home, you have other things that might keep you out of a work mentality. So I always thought that the workers wouldn't necessarily be as productive if they didn't show up. Now, sure, they save some time. They don't have to commute and they don't have to spend as much time getting ready for work. So that frees up more time to actually work. But what if the workers don't use that extra time to do more work? They just enjoy more leisure. That may be good for the worker, but it doesn't necessarily add anything to the employer. But the article that I read really exposes the big flaw. What workers have been doing is taking advantage of the fact that their bosses have no idea what they're doing and they're not monitoring them throughout the day. They are taking advantage of this by holding down multiple full-time jobs. There were several people who were interviewed in this article that had two full-time jobs. And it wasn't like they were working 80 hours a week they were still working 40 hours a week. They were just devoting 20 hours to each full-time job. So in other words, they were doing a half-assed job. They weren't really giving it their all. They were just doing the minimum amount to get by. 
And this is also one of the reasons that you've got a big drop in productivity is because these full-time workers aren't really working full-time. They're working part-time because they're holding down more than one full-time job. But they're being paid as if they were actually working full-time at both jobs. In fact, some people may have three, four, or five. Who knows how many full-time jobs you can apply for and get. If you've got a good resume, if you went to a good school, if you held down some good jobs, you're in demand. You could probably get almost every job you apply for and then just take them all. When you had to go to an office, you could only take one job because you could only be in one place at the same time. But if you do all your work from home, you can do multiple jobs from the same place. In fact, there's even a cottage industry now online helping people juggle multiple full-time jobs at the same time. And even if you're doing a bad job, it may take your employer many, many months to discover that you've done a bad job and fire you. In the meantime, you're collecting that paycheck. And you know what you can do? You can keep accepting more full-time jobs that you barely do and just keep collecting the paychecks as long as your employers haven't figured out that you're barely working. And if you just do the minimum, well, you can get by. And this is what's happening. But this is really a windfall for a lot of people who are making a lot more money than they really should be making. And I think what a lot of these workers are discovering is why should I bust my butt to get a promotion and to get a raise when I could just have two jobs and do a half-assed job and I never get promoted and I never get a raise, but these two entry-level salaries combined, I'm making more than if I did a really good job and got promoted and got a raise. And so this is what is going on. In fact, I also read about another phenomenon called quiet quitting, where workers don't actually quit their job. They just quit working, but they keep collecting a paycheck. They're not really trying to thrive. They're just trying not to get fired and to keep getting paid. This is not the work ethic that you want in an economy. America was not built on this crappy work ethic. We are in a globally competitive market. And if this is the work attitude of Americans, if we're no longer a nation of overachievers, of go-getters, of people that are really striving to be the best, well, how are we going to compete? But also, I think what this means is as a lot of employers may read the Wall Street Journal or some other stories and actually get wise to what's going on. And when they put two and two together, they're going to make some changes. A lot more companies are going to start demanding that their workers actually show up. And that means some of these people are going to have to give up some of their other jobs. And so that means there's going to be a lot of job losses because if you have to give up one or two jobs in order to show up for one job, well, that's going to reflect in the job creation for those months. By the way, if people have multiple full-time jobs, if they get fired from one of them, that's not going to show up as the first-time unemployment claims because if you're still employed, you can't claim unemployment. If you have three jobs and you lose one of them, you can't get unemployment because one of your three jobs is gone. You still have two other jobs, so you don't qualify. So this might also be distorting these numbers, but this is also going to be a big problem for these workers 
who are going to see big cuts in their pay when they can no longer lie to their employers and pretend that they only have one job when they have multiple jobs. Now, what might actually happen is in order for a company to get a worker to show up, they may have to pay them more. In fact, one of the reasons that so many people may be working without a raise or in fact a pay cut when adjusted for inflation is because they had two or three jobs. And so they really couldn't demand a raise when they were doing such a crappy job and they weren't really devoting all their time to one job. They were spreading themselves very thin with multiple jobs. So as a result, workers were content not to demand a raise. After all, if you're barely working, the last thing you want to do is call attention to the work that you're not doing. You want to fly under the radar. You don't want to force your boss to actually evaluate your performance by calling attention to yourself and demanding a raise. But if they're actually going to put their all into their job, if they're only going to work for one employer and give up the other jobs, well, then they're going to demand and probably get a bigger raise. And that is going to put even more upward pressure on costs that businesses are going to have to pass on to their customers. Now, these workers may be more productive. Hopefully, they will be more productive if they're devoting all of their time to one employer instead of spreading out their time with multiple employers. But that may not be enough to compensate for the higher labor costs. So all of this shows problems in the economy. It shows that some people have been able to game the system and take advantage of the fact that they've been able to work from home to temporarily boost their incomes. And this is also impacting on a lot of other economic data because these workers who have been able to fool their employers and who are collecting two or three paychecks for full-time work that they're not actually doing, they've been able to spend money that they really didn't earn. And when the gravy train comes to an end, that also is going to be a big problem that's going to show up in other parts of the economy. And finally, I want to wrap up today's podcast by encouraging people to follow me on some of my social media sites. I finally went over a bit of a milestone this week with my Twitter account. I went over 800,000 Twitter followers. My goal is a million. And so if you're not currently following me on Twitter, help me get to a million by following me, but don't stop at Twitter. I'm also on Instagram. I'm even on TikTok now. Of course, I'm on Facebook as well. I'm over 500,000 subscribers on YouTube, but my subscriber growth has really slowed down. So if you're listening to my podcast on a regular basis and you don't listen on YouTube, and so you're not subscribing to my YouTube channel, just go over to my YouTube channel anyway and subscribe, even if you're not going to listen there. I really want to get my subscribers up to call more attention to my channel. And by the way, if you missed the special video I did last year titled The Day the Dollar Died, on the 50-year anniversary of Nixon taking the United States off the gold standard, this week we had the 51st anniversary. Now, I didn't do a special video for 51 because I did one for 50. But if you didn't watch that video last year, make a point of watching it this year. Don't watch the initial one. I actually made it a little bit better. So watch the director's cut. That is my favorite version of that video. But not only is it a great video to watch yourself, 
but it's an even better video to share with other people. It's not that long, and there's a lot of pictures in there to help keep people's interest. Some people, they just can't listen to somebody talk. They really need to see something visual. And I think we did a really good job in using the images to help me tell the story. Thank you.